the United States of America is called a Christian nation. Christian nation. Christian nation. It's time for a moment of clarity with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Let us pray that this nation does come to a moment of clarity. Faith, faith, faith. Politics, 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 history, history, and current events. Current events. now, your host, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but in the meantime, I am Derek Stone with a moment on sports, part one. 85 years ago on September 28th, the Detroit Tigers defeated the Chicago White Sox 8-3 during their 1935 World Series championship season. Second baseman Charlie Geringer drove in three runs and scored two runs and center fielder G. Walker recorded two runs batted in to lead the Tigers' offensive attack. Geringer singled to send home Pete Fox, grounded out to plate Walker, and smashed a solo home run in the first, fourth, and ninth innings, respectively. The Detroit second baseman scored his other run off a single by Goose Goslin in the first inning, while his center fielder teammate crushed a double to send home schoolboy Rowe and Fox in the fourth inning. It's time for a moment of clarity. The United States of America is called a Christian nation. And our Lord tells us in his book, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We no longer look at the God of the Bible. We now look at the gods of atheism, humanism, socialism, abortionism, scientism, and progressivism. And as long as we look at those as gods, this nation is doomed to be judged by the one true God. So let us find God's face in our art, in our culture, in our politics, and in our faith. Let us pray that this nation does come to a moment of clarity. A moment of clarity with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Right here at 2 p.m. Saturday on Wham Radio. And good afternoon. Most of you who listen know my favorite quote. It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. You know, that that quote means so many different things. First of all, it means we should be able to, when we have a thought, not just automatically think it's a nugget of gold. Sometimes we have to take our own thoughts and weigh them out and make sure that they make sense. All too often, we just speak about the first thing that comes to our mind without really weighing if it makes sense. It also means that we have to listen to others that may have differenting views of ourselves, and we need to weigh them out. You know, the one thing I love about Aristotle is he thought it was important, important that everyone learned how to articulate their their thesis, their arguments. And um, something that's not taught in our students today. And uh, I was listening to some uh, vlogs on YouTube oh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, ran across one that I was just thoroughly impressed with. Um, and it's, it's called Unsafe Space. Um, and it's, it, it's uh, hosted by uh, Carter Laren, who um, I'll talk about in a bit before we get to our guest. And his co-host uh, is Carrie Smith. Very articulate, very well-spoken uh, uh, group. And they, they 
they bring out some great arguments and uh, not necessarily something I would always agree with. I will tell you, uh, for those who listen to my show, know, know uh, my dear friend Gary. He and I have some very different views. He and I, um, I, I am a Christian pastor, and and Gary is is a, a devout, I, I like using that word, a devout atheist. And yet we can have conversations and be civil towards each other. And um, that's actually upset people on, uh, that listen to the show saying, how dare you have an atheist on your show? If we don't talk to people, if we don't share ideas, if we don't share our internal truths with each other, how can anyone ever settle anything? Now, with our host today, uh, or co-hosting with me today, is my favorite redhead, my best friend, and my wife, Gaylene. How you doing, Gaylene? I'm doing well today, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking to our guest. I think this is going to be real interesting. Great. And um, our guest is from the, the YouTube vlog, Unsafe Space. And folks, check it out. I'm telling you, Unsafe Space. Check it out. Subscribe. It's worth listening to. Are you going to agree with everything that both of them say? Probably not. Um, and, but then again, you might. I, I haven't found too much that I can disagree with, especially what Carrie has to say, because, well, she, she is a, a new believer. But what is so impressive about Carrie, our guest, and this is going to be my introduction of her, she used to be a social justice warrior. And you all know how I feel about social justice. It's a cult. It is a new religion of the land. It is there to literally destroy the thinking process of the American people. She used to be a social justice warrior. She claims she's still a liberal. I'm going to ask her about that. Uh, but uh, she, she says she's a liberal, and, but she's no longer a social justice warrior. As a matter of fact, she fights against social justice. That in itself reached out to me because she hit right at home. Uh, I grew up in a socialist country in Canada, as you know, and um, I came over here. Uh, to get away from socialism. And social justice is just, a, it's a law system that they're trying to use to replace criminal law. They're trying to institute social justice instead of criminal justice. And um, it's causing huge overreach by the government. So let me welcome our guest, Carrie Smith. How are you doing, Carrie? Hi, Richard. I'm doing well. Thank you for that really kind introduction. And uh, I want to say I I often disagree with my co-host as well. <laughs> we disagree. Well, it, quite it's, frequently. it's good to have someone you can talk to and disagree with and do it civilly. Yes, and we still love each other at the end of the day. And in fact, I think our most contentious arguments are not about God or politics. They've been about merchandise. So. So I have I have to ask you this question, and first of all, let me tell you because I was I was I know I it almost probably came across as creepy that I wanted to talk to you before the show, but I like to find out who I'm talking to and let them know where I stand on a lot of things. Um, mm -hmm. I, I consider myself, I call myself a conservative. I am not a Republican by any means. I call myself a conservative because I believe that. Um, Government needs to be extremely limited in their venue. It's, I would prefer to call myself a Jeffersonian liberal, but society has changed the term of liberal so much, I can't call myself liberal anymore. Um, you, you, mm -hmm. you state you're a liberal, and I'm going to ask you to, just to define that a little bit. Yes, yeah, so that's interesting because I 
am clinging to the word liberal for exactly the reason you have abandoned it or don't use it to describe yourself. I, I think there's a problem on the left where people, that word has become conflated with things that are very illiberal. And so this ideology, my old ideology, social justice, which is a kind of Marxism, it's not mm-hmm. liberal in the least. It doesn't support free speech. It's for censorship. It is, it's, it's not for the non-aggression principle. It's for violence. And I don't, I don't consider any of those things to be liberal. I consider it to be very authoritarian ideology. And so part of the reason I won't cede that term to them is because I know a lot of people on the left like myself who believe that they're liberals or maybe started out with liberal principles and have gotten pulled into this social justice ideology and are confusing it with liberalism and haven't really taken the time to differentiate, like, hey, what, what, what are the similarities, what are the differences between liberalism and social justice? And for a lot of those people, being a liberal is part of their identity. Their, their whole sense of being is tied up in being a liberal. And so I want to help liberals understand you can still be a liberal. In fact, if you are a liberal, you should oppose social justice ideology, and you should be the loudest people opposing it because it's on your, it's on our side. That's why I criticize social justice so much is because, because I feel responsible for it in a way. And I often get, when I first started going down this, this sort of transformation that took a while, I would get a lot of friends asking me, why are you always criticizing the left? Why, are, why don't you ever criticize the right? And my response to that is because I'm not on the right. I don't care what they do. I don't know a lot about the extremism on the right, but I've lived in the extremism on the left for 20 years. So it's just natural to me that if you love something, you should criticize it and want it to be better. And, and liberalism is slowly being cannibalized by this leftist social justice belief system. So... Maybe if you love something, you protect it. And uh, sometimes that protection, you have to be harsh and, and critical of it. As a matter of fact, I would state, I agree with you. You have to be critical of it, which is why I cannot I cannot claim to be a Republican because, well, I'm more protective of my ideology of certain freedoms to, to be protected, uh, such as the Bill of Rights. And uh, the Constitution. So, and... and I think the word conservative. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I think the word conservative, in in one way, speaks to me in in this sense: is I want a very conservative, which is a smaller government, very conservative, not not overwhelming. I think the term conservative in politics is has been abused also, um, as much as liberal has. So, push come to shove, I've told people I'm a Jeffersonian liberal. So I got to go back that far, to uh, so they understand what liberal means. Mm-hmm. But well, uh, it's so. funny. I um, I made these shirts <laughs> because what you're saying. I, I, I'm very familiar with the fact that I, I don't believe the Democrats are liberals anymore, which is why I've walked away from the party. I made these shirts that said "Make Democrats Liberal Again," and I get the funniest reactions from people. Uh, and and then I get to, and then I get to have conversations with them and figure out if they if they know what I mean by it or if they have a different interpretation of it. And then I had mm-hmm. some friends on the right, conservatives, who were saying, hey, we need the same, we need to make Republicans conservative again. Because <laughs> they were Absolutely. saying they felt the same, the same drifting of definitions. I think that's one of the hardest things about having conversations today is that 
you have to get to a place where you're at the very beginning, you have to define terms with people because everyone uses the term liberal in a different way. And I'm, I'm sure they probably use conservative in different ways. Yeah, they, they certainly do. And, uh, it's, and each word is a dirty word to the other, which is ridiculous. So it's, how do I explain this? Yeah. Um, I, I n- normally get a lot of people that I absolutely um, have different views of coming on as guests to my show. And I, I do that on purpose because I don't bring them on so much for the debate. I bring them on for the exchange of ideas. For example, as a pastor, I, I am opposed. And we don't, we're, I'm not looking at getting in this conversation right now. Right. But I, I am opposed to, to abortion. But uh, I'm willing to have people come on and give me their views and and why they hold them. And the reason I bring this up is because I always handle that conversation from a moral and ethical view, not a religious view. Because I'm a firm believer that a person's faith is an individual relationship that they have with the God they believe in. That is their things. And my God says, hey... Um, if they don't believe, that is between me and them, and I will take care of judgment between them. It's not up to you to judge them for their belief system. That's up to God, right? So right. I will take it from a moral and ethical view because I think, and I was, I was listen, listening to your uh, show that you guys did last night, and you made a point. There's a lot of unmoral and unethical laws on the book that need to be changed, um, yes. And I think we need to look at laws at a case of morals and ethics. And uh, and that, that hit me right right between the eyes because um, that, that's the same time, right how I believe. Yeah, at the same time, though, well, so, yeah, what we were talking about last night was uh, specifically about the Breonna Taylor case and about people, uh, Carter was walking through the facts of the case with me, and his point was that the what the cops did, the entire situation was tragic. Um, her boyfriend fired first, but that's what Carter would do, and that's probably what I would do if somebody barged into my house in the middle of the night and I wasn't sure who they were. Um, and then the cops fired back because that's their job, and that's what they're to, there right. to do. So so it, it was a tragic situation all around. And but But to say that the justice system should then indict and convict the cops for doing what is currently legal, the no-knock warrants, he said you can't expect that, and, and you have to actually change the law. You can't convict someone in a court of law if the law is on their side. You have to, if you think the law is wrong and immoral, you have to change it. But one caveat I'll give to that is that actually one of the problems I've seen on the left is that people, people on the left, and maybe they do this on the right too, actually I'm sure they do on the right, um, but people on the left tend to they, anything they think is immoral, they think should be illegal. So mm-hmm. they don't they they don't differentiate the two. And so maybe this puts me more in the libertarian camp, I guess. But um, on the left, for example, if they believe that the cake baker, they believe the cake baker should should bake the cake for a gay wedding, and that it's immoral for him not to do so, that it's bigotry for him not to do so. Therefore, they think it should be illegal for him not to do so. Well, I don't agree. Right. Like you can think that that's immoral, you can think that's bigotry, but I think that people should be allowed to have personal beliefs where they say, I don't want to provide this service, and the government shouldn't be able to come in and force you to provide that service that's against your moral beliefs. And we all have exactly. such different definitions of morality. 
You know, if we had somebody who was a seamstress or a costume maker and we and we custom ordered from them, you know, a MAGA mask and they refuse to make it, then are they also just as liable as a cake baker? And, exactly. you know, so, it, it yeah, it's that kind of a question. So, I think it's confusing are, because we have certain things we all agree on, across, you know, right. which I think stem from Christianity, but... There, there are some cut and dry things where we, we all believe abortion is murder. Not, not, sorry, we do not all believe abortion is murder. We all believe murder right. is wrong. We don't all agree that abortion is murder. And, that, and then, right. so then you start having these different definitions of morality where a person on the left would say, no, it's immoral for, it's more immoral for the government to force a woman to carry a child to term than it is to abort. So there's a really interesting book. I don't know if you've read it. It's, um, Jonathan Haidt, his, I think it was his first book, maybe. It was called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided on Politics and Religion. And it was fascinating. Yes. He's a psychologist, and he did these studies on morality, and he basically makes a case where he maps out different... He says, we all have different... You can think of morality like taste buds. <laughs> and conservatives have a few more taste buds for morality than liberals do. Um, and the one, the one channel that they, the one taste bud that they seem to both share is that they both care about harm caused to other, to others. And so, the the harm, if you can, if you can appeal to someone on the other side and make them see the harm in something, that's a morality channel that liberals and conservatives share. We just have different definitions of which harm, like, is greater. Right. I thought Normally I thought that was get... fascinating. Normally, when I get into like the conversations of, of morals. I tend to take more of the approach is all right. Defend, defend your your thesis, defend your argument. Um, is your moral slate constant? So you know, uh, if you believe this is right in this situation, is it always right? If you think it's wrong in this situation, do you think it's always wrong? And um, it ends up with some great conversations. I, I do have a question for you. Um, sure. You you state you used to be extremely in well you used to be a social social justice warrior. Give us that definition first. I've given it before <laughs> on my show, but I want somebody who yes. actually used to be a social justice warrior to define that. Sure. So social justice is uh, the, the way I've started explaining it. I think which gets at the heart of heart of it the most easily is that it's a mutated kind of Marxism that's based around identity and power rather than around uh, wealth and class. And so the, so the way the Marxists that we're familiar with, the Marxism you know, that was based around class, basically said that the best way to look at the world, the philosophy for looking at the world, is as a struggle between groups of people, um, groups of, that are defined by class, and that struggle is for wealth. And so they believed in redistributing wealth by force, and that this would create this utopia. Um, we all know what happened with that, but... but and as a result of that, a lot of the Marxists went into this sort of social justice area, and they've they've basically taken the same ideology, but they've structured it now around power, and they say the best way to look at the world is as a struggle for power between competing identity groups. And just like the Marxists of old, they, they believe in redistributing power as they define it. And so at the end mm -hmm. of the day, it's a, it's a collectivist ideology because it tells us that we have to look at what, what identity groups people are in and we have to judge them and treat them accordingly instead of treating them as individuals. And so 
the kind of collectivism it pushes is racism. It pushes racism. It pushes sexism. Right. It pushes um, prejudice and discrimination on the basis of your immutable identity markers. And the the really evil thing about this belief system is that it sells itself as the exact opposite. And that's why I call it evil, because it 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 actually seduces a lot of people, a lot of people who have good intentions and who want to end racism and want to end sexism, and it tells it tells them this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it is by judging and treating people differently on the basis of race and sex. And the, and the way you get people to do that is you redefine words. It's very concerned with controlling language and controlling thought. And so I'm sure you guys have run across the new definitions of racism and right. sexism. Yes. Yeah, they're constantly redefining words, and they're constantly coming up with new words. And, and if you notice, most of their, their buzzwords, their terminology, their words are not used to better communicate, better articulate oneself, but to help someone understand you better. The words are used to shut down conversation. So if you've ever seen, if you've ever had a conversation with someone who who upholds some of the tenets of this belief system, they'll throw these like smoke bombs into the conversation, like white privilege, boom, I'm out. You know, that's your male privilege. Goodbye. <laughs> and it just it just shuts it down. All right, Galen has a question for you. Well, actually, I just wanted to kind of say something here. I have a friend who is from Seychelles. And she identifies as a black woman and she is offended at African-American. She says, I'm not African and I'm not American because I'm a landed immigrant. I am Seychellois. So if you don't know what I am, call me black. Don't call yeah. me African-American. And so, you know, when we have to label an entire group of people, I had a friend that I worked with years ago and she was half Irish and half black. And she'd say, so what, I'm supposed to get rid of my Irish heritage? You yeah. know, so it, it's it, it's really interesting how everybody wants to lump people into a box and they think that this is just, and it's not. Yeah. It's not. So, And you're right, you, that, that, is it Galen? Galen. Yep. Galen. That's, that's actually, there are a lot of lines where th- this this ideology starts to break down. And and that's one of them. If you pull on that thread for a while with someone, you will see that they don't. A lot of people who are in this belief system. It almost operates like a cult. They're they don't operate. They're not thinking. They're not allowed to think. I turned my brain off for twenty years when I was in this belief system. What they're doing is memorizing the new updated tenets of the belief system, and they get updated pretty regularly, and then they repeat those. But they are not very good at going off script. And so if you start pulling that thread of what about biracial people, like what category do you put them in? What about multiracial people? What category do you put them in? How do you treat this person? They don't have intellectually consistent consistent answers because they're actually not, you know, I argue they're not operating in a place of thought. They're not even allowing themselves to think. It's almost like they have a little internal SJW sensor in their head, and every time they speak or post something online, they're running it through that sensor to make sure they're ideologically pure and they're not tripping over some new rule or some new tripwire. So, what, for example... What was the event? Okay. And, and hopefully I can get this question answered before we go to break. Uh, and, yeah. and first of all, can you stay over to the second half? Sure, yeah. 
Okay. Um, so the question I'm going to ask is this. What, first of all, what brought you to the realization that social justice, I do use the term cult. I call it a, a false religion. Absolutely. Um, and I always have. And unfortunately, that false religion is creeping in big time into the Christian, into the Christian churches. Yes. Unbelievably bad. Uh, and we can talk about that after the break if you want to. But what brought you to the realization that social justice was basically a religion with no grace, a faith with no grace? So there's two parts to this answer. One is that, one is about the psychological state I was in, or the spiritual state I was in at the time, and I, I almost feel that people okay. have to be in Carrie, this. I, I, I got to uh, ask you, you're going to be put on hold until after the break, and then I will let you okay. answer that question. Okay. Pastor Richard Dietering on Wham. Pastor Rick will be joining you again momentarily, but in the meantime, I am Derek Stone with another moment on sports. 75 years ago today, the Detroit Tigers obliterated the Cleveland Indians 11 to nothing during their 1945 World Series championship season. Left fielder Hank Greenberg and right fielder Roy Cullenbein each drove in three runs and scored two runs to pace the Tigers' offensive blitzkrieg, while Detroit pitcher Hal Newhauser flummoxed the Indians' hitters by pitching a complete game and striking out ten batters. Cullenbein smashed a three-run bomb that plated Greenberg and center fielder Doc Kramer in the first inning, the Tigers' left fielder belted a three-run round tripper that sent home Newhauser and Kramer, and his right fielder teammates scored after first baseman Rudy York smoked a double in the seventh inning. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. And we are back. We are speaking with Carrie Smith from Unsafe Space. And folks, go to YouTube, find Unsafe Space, Watch it, click on it, subscribe to it. It is a fantastic, a fantastic show. Uh, you will get a lot of information. You will get a, a lot of facts. You'll get a lot of truth. Uh, and you know what? And if you don't agree with everything they say, don't feel bad because you're not going to agree with everything anybody says. But there's, it's a fantastic show, and I'm speaking with one of the hosts right now, Carrie Smith. And, and, and Carrie, you have to let Carter know I'm going to be reaching out to him here relatively soon to get him on, on the show also. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll let him know. So, but there was a reason I asked you, Don. First of all, you were explaining what what caused you to be, I don't know, how do you become unwoke? <laughs> yeah. You were woke, then you woke well, up. So how do you wake up from being woke up? I guess that's the question. Well, it's a great question. I've been asked that. I wish there was a magic solution, <laughs> but I'll try to best explain what I think what I think happened to me and what what has happened to others I know who've left is uh, before I explain the psychological state I was in, look, I'll just tell you the things I saw that started to open my mind. I I first saw I, I went down a rabbit hole of videos on YouTube of people on my side, presumably my side, people on the left attacking Trump supporters outside of rallies. And this was in 2016. It was before the election. And I, 
I didn't know this was happening, and so it. I watched video after video of people being bloodied, you know, hit with bricks, hit with eggs, with you know the mob circling them as they were leaving rallies, and it just really emotionally affected me. Um, and and I think I think that's important because a lot of times people try to use reason to change people's minds. They try to use facts and reason and. To go back to that book I mentioned earlier, Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, he, he kind of talks about how our minds are almost like, uh, you can think of our mind as a rider on an elephant. The rider is our rational mind, and the elephant is our emotional mind. And we all like to think that we we make decisions based on the rational mind, on the rider, but you know, he argues that most of us, our elephant is driving, <laughs> and then our rider, our rational mind, will kind of work backwards and try to rationalize our answers. So that's that kind of for me it helped explain why when you give somebody facts they can so easily discard them if it doesn't fit with the narrative their underlying, you know, foundational beliefs and emotionally they're not they don't have an incentive to adopt those facts. And so so it was something emotional that first started to make me question things and then there were a few other things it wasn't you know I didn't wake up the next day after seeing those videos and and abandon my belief system. It it took a while. It took a, about six months at least. But I started to see other things. I saw in Dallas when at the Black Lives Matter rally when that sniper killed a, a, six police officers and people in my you know carefully cultivated SJW echo chamber they they were celebrating it. They they there was this glee almost and and it, it just shocked me because I wasn't you know I didn't sign up for for liberalism. So I could condone murder, <laughs> you know. It just was, it was really ar- arresting, and so there were other things that started to make me question my side or question my belief system. Um, and then, but the, but to go back to the psychological state, I also feel like maybe people have to be in a place. Maybe they don't, but some people I think have to be in a place of personal growth or vulnerability or transformation anyway, I was in a very dark place. I was going through a divorce, and I was trying to figure out who I was. I'd sort of lost my identity in, in, I didn't really, you know, I couldn't even answer basic questions about what I wanted from life, and I became very obsessed with the question of whether or not we have a soul. It was the beginning of my walk back to God, actually, because I started going to a spiritual center in Los Angeles where I was living at the time. And mm-hmm. it was a non-denominational spiritual center. It's called Agape, and they, um, the 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 pastor there, uh, Michael Bernard Beckwith, he's sort of new. There's like some new age elements, but he there's Christianity. He kind of brings in a little of everything. And honestly, like that's that's the only place I would have gone at that time in my life. It's interesting to me now because I'm at a very different, you know, Christian church, but. Um, there, people are, are going to come to God through all manner of doors, <laughs> and yeah. and I think if you if you have a it sounds like you have a Christian audience. If there's someone in your life who starts asking questions and starts seeking truth and starts looking for truth, I would say just remain patient and encouraging, and try not to be the judgmental person who's telling them why that church isn't good enough. <laughs> so, well, well I, I'll was, say this. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of our listeners actually are not Christian, but they they oh, okay. they tolerate me. <laughs> but uh, that's like my audience. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, here, here's the thing, and I, I kind of know where you're coming from, and I'll just give you a little bit of my story. Is I came kicking and screaming to Christianity. I came from a very abusive household, uh, did not have a really fond, fond picture of what a father figure looked like, so talking to me about a great father, God, uh, just wasn't in my wheelhouse. And uh, yeah, even at that point before I did that, I started to saying, hey, there's got to be a way man can make man better. There has to be a way that man can make things better because God didn't make sense to me at the time. And I see this as what social justice is about is they're trying to build this utopia that can exist. And in trying to create this utopia, they have to get rid of everyone who doesn't think like them. Yeah. And uh, I finally came to the Lord and it was a great thing. But that that wasn't this. That's not exactly where I woke up from being woke, uh, that came with time. It, it came with trying to understand the human psyche of how far are you willing to go uh, to try to create a better world when man can't create a better world. We've proven that. You know, I, I want to well, just chime in here because it's really interesting to me how this whole leaning towards socialism thing is really, they are so violent and they say, and they're violent with well in the end and it's all this the end justifies the means but if yeah. you don't agree with them then the the violence you know can be turned on you even if you agree with what you want for the end outcome if you don't agree with the fact that you know the end justifies the means and it's a lot like you know if you look at china and and what's going on with Christians there. And if you, and if you look at what goes on with anybody who disagrees, they basically are dragged out and either reprogrammed forcibly or killed. And that's what they want to do here. And it's ridiculous. This is America. We don't reprogram people who don't think like this. It's, it's, it's sickening. Yeah. Okay, like, so I got a question. Right. They, well, they, I would just say on that note, they do, like I said, they, they use words of manipulation. They use words to control. And so I'm sure you guys have seen one of the most popular social justice, you know, Marxist phrases they've been saying lately is silence is violence. Yes. That's a lie, first of all. It's an outright lie. Silence is not violence. And they don't even believe that because if you don't agree with them, they want you to be silent. <laughs> so they, they don't... They don't even believe what they're putting on their sign. But the reason they're trying to get you to believe it or other people to believe it is because they're trying to equate they're trying to equate speech or the lack thereof with violence so that they can then justify actual violence against people who disagree with them. If we get to a place culturally where as a society we're we're comfortable saying that silence is violence or words are violence, well then it's self, it's acceptable to react with actual violence because it's self defense now, right? They're using violence against me. They're using words against me. They're using right. silence against me, so I can therefore be violent. It, they're trying to slowly conflate those words, and that that's one of the slogans I find lately to be the most abhorrent. Um, I can't stand seeing that phrase because, yeah, it's just, I, I just don't like seeing lies, and I don't like seeing people carrying signs that they haven't even thought through because they don't agree with what's on their sign. Well, you find that an awful lot that they don't actually believe what they're saying. Uh, it's it's just catchy. Uh, it's, it's just catchy. Okay, I do have a, a question I want to get to you, but first, folks, I 
I know there's a lot of you that have questions for Carrie. May I suggest that you find Unsafe Space on YouTube? Uh, they do live vlogs, and there's places on the side where you can communicate and ask Carrie and Carter all sorts of great questions. And, and they, they try to uh, reach out to most of those questions from what I've seen. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, let's talk about something that's been around and it's a thorn on my side and i've heard you mention it a few times uh crt or crit critical racist theory yeah uh, i find that to be racist in itself but i'll let you people know my view i'll let them get your view of it and your opinion of critical racist theory so a good way to think about this is is social justice marxist ideology is i think of it like an umbrella and underneath that umbrella you have all of these different parts of it um, so one part of it is race, and in the race area, they've, they've pushed critical race theory is, is how the pseudo-intellectual jargon they use to push the racism in social justice. Then under the umbrella, you also have the feminist movement, the modern feminist movement. Um, you have the LGBT movement. You have, And there's these ever-evolving uh, places of identity under the umbrella. And so they've now pulled in, for example, they've pulled in... Um, fat people. They've said that now, because they view the world as a competition for power between identity groups, and it helps you in this ideology to be in one of the marginalized groups. And see, in, each, in, every, in every sphere of identity, they say there's an oppressed group and there's an oppressor group. So when it comes to race, they say white people are the oppressors, and all people of color, anyone who's not white is the oppressed. And they use the words privileged and marginalized interchangeably with, with uh, oppressor and oppressed. And so in the sphere of sex, they say women are the oppressed or the marginalized, and men are the oppressors or the privileged. And, and now they have, you know, fat studies where they say fat people are the oppressed and marginalized, and people who are not fat are the oppressors or the privileged. They've, they've pulled in uh, trans issues. You know, they've pulled in... Um, uh, even, even it's funny, in the religious area, they say Christians are the oppressors, and the privileged, and they say Islam, Muslims are the oppressed, and they say atheists are the oppressed, so anyone who's not a Christian is in the oppressed group. Um, I only say this because I think sometimes it helps people to visualize that it's not just the one thing. It's not just critical race theory. That's why sometimes it's confusing. You will see um, people in the critical race field or in BLM, which is just, it's just the group of the moment in that area, but you know, BLM will be pushing transgender ideology as well, and, and that's because it's all connected. These are all different spheres of identity under the umbrella of social justice. So in the race sphere, that happens to be the engine that's driving the entire ideology at this moment in history. It, in, you know, since George Floyd, it could have been anything, but that is the spark that took. And so it's now become dominant and mainstream. And and yeah, they are pushing critical race theory in school. They've been pushing it, um, you know, I was indoctrinated into it in college, but it's now in public elementary schools. They're teaching it to kids as young as in kindergarten. Um, it, it has been in our military. It has been in our, our government labs, like Sandia Labs. And I don't know if your listeners have followed, but if they haven't, there was a whistleblower at Sandia Labs, Casey Peterson, who came out and exposed the fact that they're indoctrinating all of these people with taxpayer dollars indoctrinating people into critical race theory. And then the president just issued an executive action saying that that's no longer going to happen. So I know a lot of people were pleased, hoping, hoping that that's going to root it out of the federal labs. But the critical race theory basically says that 
white people are the oppressors. Anyone who's not white is oppressed. Every white person is born inherently with racism. It, it, they, they take a lot from religion. It, it's, you, you are born as a white person. Your original sin is your privilege. It's, and, and so th- there's one difference between, uh, one of the differences is that their, their concept of original sin doesn't apply equally to each person. Your amount, your degree of original sin, your degree of privilege depends on what groups you're in. <laughs> so basically, it's, it's melanin-based. It is. It's melanin-based. It's also sex-based. So, so they basically would look at, at me, for example, and they would say, well, you're white, so you're in the oppressor group. So you have power and privilege, but you're also a woman, and you're in the oppressed group there. So there you're marginalized, and you don't have power there. And then you're straight, so you're you're in the oppressor group again. And they, you know, they go down the list of all these identities, and then they do some calculation they can't explain because they don't believe in individualism. And they and and if you notice, it really just depends on what argument you're in. If I'm if I'm a social justice warrior, I'm in an argument with a man about something that's related to sex or gender or or even actually anything. If I'm in an argument with a man who's also white, then then in that conversation they say I'm the oppressed. I don't have any power. He's privileged because he's a man. He's the oppressor, and therefore conversation we should not be having a conversation because the power dynamic doesn't allow for me to be on equal footing with him first of all so it's perfectly acceptable for them to say you know i'm not going to talk with you because you're a man and your opinion is irrelevant you don't get to have an opinion you don't get to speak and and they point to sex or they point to race as perfectly valid reasons for telling you that you don't get to have a voice or an opinion well that's sexist that's racist to do that so I, I, yeah, I've heard you ask this question. This is a question I've been asking quite a bit. I, I, I use like affirmative action to bring this point out, but anything in social justice where you where you have to take some group based on identity and, and keep lifting them up so they are equal. Um, I, I have a problem with this, and I'll get into that in a bit. But where where do they all of a sudden become equal, or where do they surpass that and become the oppressor, and then the ex-oppressor now become the oppressed? I mean, where does where does that balance out? That's an excellent question, and I've asked the form of that question many times, and they can't answer it. And if there's anyone listening who knows someone in their life who they love who's getting pulled into this belief system slowly, um, this is a great question. I always try to get them to go off script. And again, I'm trying to get them to think and to use their brain and to quit just repeating the catchphrases and the, the magic words that they use and, and, and go off script and think. And so one of the things I do is they, they like to say in critical race theory, they teach that racism is impossible against white people and that black people cannot be racist or that anyone who's not white cannot be racist. And the way that they teach this, this is how they get people who are against racism to push racism is by changing the definition. They say racism now, the new definition of racism is prejudice plus power. And they define power as this, you know, something held by a group, collective power. So they say it's, it's impossible to be racist and they won't even discuss racism with you unless you accept their definition usually. So what I like to do is, is say, okay, I don't agree with you. Racism is racism. It's treating someone differently on the basis of race. But 
but I'm going to accept your definition and I'm going to say, okay, what's happening? You can take a, take a case where something racist happens toward, happened toward a white person, for example. So, so I'm going to just call that prejudice. That's what you're saying you want me to do, right? So, so at what point, at, at what measurable end goal in society will things be equal enough that, that, that prejudice act is now defined as racism? <laughs> and, and they can't answer that. Like, at what point is it now possible, in your mind, at what point will we know that it's now possible to be racist towards white people or that it's possible to be sexist towards men again? And how do we measure that? How do we know we've reached that goal? And then, practically speaking, once you've indoctrinated generations of children to believe that racism is something that can't happen to a specific race or sexism can't happen to a specific sex, how do you then roll that back? Now that you've spent all this time pumping this into their heads since they were kids, how do you then say, oh, wait, hey, it's, hey, it's now possible to be racist towards this, this race we told you that it wasn't? Um, they yeah, can't yeah. answer that question. They never answer that question. But it does, they've tried, I've had some of them try, and it does cause them to go off script. If they're, if they're trying to act in good faith, it causes them to start to think, and it maybe puts, crack, puts a crack in that ideology that they come back to later. Just uh, just for your notes, here in, here in Michigan, I was seeing a posting put up by our, our energy company. Uh, they are looking for a black MBA uh, candidate for their job, uh, master business. business. Uh, they're looking for a black MBA, not just a good qualified MBA. Uh, the one they need to hire has to be black, which I, I, I found that actually rather offensive. That uh, It's very, they're, they're, yeah. It's very condescending. Well, it's exactly what yeah. um, Biden just did, saying he's going to pick a woman. And, and, and the thing about that is, is you know, cr- critical race theory, social justice ideology, it, it's not just racist towards white people or sexist towards men. This ideology is racist towards everyone. It's sexist towards everyone. And the way that the, the racism and sexism plays out is different. But look, for, for, for women, for example, it is sexist. And it is condescending to announce to everyone that you're going to pick a woman and then pick me. And then I have to get up in front of everyone and be thought of as someone who got the job just because I'm a woman. And, and you're not telling people, I picked the best candidate. You're telling people, I picked the best candidate from among women. <laughs> like, yeah, it's so, I, I understand it's so that insulting. completely. I, you know, I have to say something here that was really interesting and it kind of harkens back to what you were saying a moment ago is that at the place that I work, somebody was talking about not allowing somebody to wear a cross. Um, and a another colleague at this university said, no, when you cross that line, when do you then come for me and the picture of my gay husband? Exactly. You cannot do that. And I thought it was really interesting that that defense came from that quarter. And this this person was really upset about it. And I thought it was really brilliant. And I had to say to him, thank you for being so brave. Carrie, first of all, I want to say thank you for coming on the show today. And I want to say that because uh, I noticed the clock. We're getting close to the end. Um, I have a very, very firm belief. This is what socialism and social justice is. And uh, you can tell me if you can agree or not. 
First of all, our Constitution says we are to be treated equal under the law. But socialism and social justice demands that we treat others unequally with some hope that we'll get an equal outcome, uh, which means we have to treat people unequally under the law. That's yes. the biggest, one of the big problems I see with socialism and social justice. That's absolutely the biggest problem. This ideology is, is ultimately, it's opposed to all of the ideas that make, that make America great, for lack of a better phrase. But it's opposed to individualism. It's opposed to to uh, equality. See, it's not for individualism. It's for collectivism. Just like white supremacy, it says that you should be treated on the basis of what racial group you're in, instead of treating people as individuals. And and it's opposed to equality because it's for equity. Anybody who hears that word equity, that's that's one of their magic words, by the way, and that should give you pause. They are for equality of outcome which is not equality. Equality of outcome requires you to force people into positions on the basis, according to their ideology, they want to do it on the basis of race and sex and sexuality. But, you know, they want... All right, Carrie, force- that's the music. Yep. But I would love to right. invite you back sometime, so watch out for that invitation. Right. I'll see you on Facebook, but have a blessed day, and thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Galen. Thank you. You've been listening to a moment of clarity on Wham Talk 1600 with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Be sure to tune in again next week, right here on Wham Radio.